1: So here's a question. Just exactly how important are our children to the Lord? Are they just hung out to dry until they're accountable and they make a choice? Or is there something far deeper going on when it comes to our kids? Join us today and find out. Abounding Grace is next. From Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose, this is Abounding Grace with our teacher and Pastor Gary Wagner. Welcome to our program today. So just how important are our kids to the Lord? You know, a lot of churches would tell you that there's not much going on until the age of accountability, and then it's up to the child to make a decision. Well, as we'll see today, our children and the covenant of grace is far-reaching. God's love for our kids is greater than we could ever imagine. We're in Luke, chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. Join us there for today's broadcast of Abounding Grace. Here's Pastor Gary Wagner.
2: On the seventh day of the little baby's life, it dies. And everyone's afraid to tell David, because if David was grieving so much over its sickness, how in the world will he respond when he is told of his baby's death. So, in fear and trembling, they tell him. And what does David do? He changes his clothes, he comes downstairs, and he eats perfectly normal. And he is asked, why are you responding this way? And here is what he said in verse 23. But now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. And David saying that that thought comforts him. I don't want to grieve any longer. I miss my child, and he shall not come back into this life. But I will go to him, and there will be a reunion. Now, let's listen to what some, in fact, many liberal professors teach about this situation. They say in the Old Testament, not only did the believers have no belief in resurrection, but they also had no belief in the afterlife as we do as Christians. They saw the afterlife, these liberals say, as some foggy, misty place out yonder somewhere And then what David is saying is simply, I'm going to die just like my baby died. Now, that's not very comforting, is it? Here is how David comforted himself, these liberals teach. You can't come to me, but someday I'm going to die just like you died. There isn't anything particularly comforting about this, is there? But what he thought, what he thought about that child comforted him. You won't come to me, but I will come to you. There will be a reunion. You are in heaven and I will come to be with you. But to enter into the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again before you die. So here David is speaking with confidence and assurance that he knows his little baby is in heaven who had to have experienced God's grace sometime in the seven days before he died. And David comforts himself with that thought because he believed the promise of God. I will be a God to you and your children after you, down through their generations, an everlasting covenant. And then David and Bathsheba have another child. Look at verse 24. Then David comforted his wife and went into her and lay with her, and she gave birth to a son, and he named him Solomon. Now, the Lord loved him and sent word through Nathan the prophet, and he named him Jedidiah, which means beloved of the Lord, for the Lord's sake. Now, here is David's second child. He names him Solomon Jedidiah, and Jedidiah means again beloved of the Lord. Now, David knew that God didn't love everybody. David knew there were some people God loved and some people God hated. David knew that God had his enemies. He prayed, if you remember, Lord, I hate those who hate you with a perfect hatred. He knew about these things. But he also knew that God loved Solomon Jedediah. Now, how could he be so confident that God loved Solomon, Jedediah, Because of the promise of God. And he didn't see a vision of some file that had a list of all the elect in heaven written upon it. Scripture says, the secret things belong to God. The things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever. But what was revealed? I will be a God to you and your children after you, down through their generations, an everlasting covenant. That's all David had to hear. Then we have David's own infancy. Look at Psalm 22. This is actually one of my favorite passages. I think Larry Binaldi knows this one very well. This is a messianic uh, psalm. But it uses the pattern of David's life to teach us things about the Messiah. So it also applies then to David. In verse 9, David says this to the Lord. And this is a prayer to God from David. Yet thou art he who didst bring me forth from the womb. Thou didst make me to trust, to believe, to have faith. That's what the Hebrew word here means. Thou didst make me to trust when upon my mother's breasts. David said, I was a believer while nursing at my mother's breasts. Now, you've got to be born again in order to believe in Jesus. You've got to have your heart changed because faith is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And David said, I was nursing a, a nursing newborn. And I had faith and trust in God. You say, Gary, how in the world could a little newborn baby nursing from its mother have faith? Beloved, I don't know. All I know is is that is what the inspired Word of God says He did. Jesus said, It would be better for a millstone to be tied around someone's neck and to be cast into the midst of the sea than to cause one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble. Now, how can a little baby believe in him? I don't know. But Jesus says you better not cause them to stumble because they believe in me. They are mine, he says. Now, how can we say this? How could David say, I believed while I was still at my mother's breast? He believed in the promise of God. But it's in the next verse that we see something even more exciting. Verse 10, upon thee I was cast from birth. Thou has been my God from my mother's womb. Now, when you go through the Psalms... And someone uses the phrase, my God, it implies fellowship with God. David says, I enjoyed sweet fellowship with God in my mother's womb. I wasn't separated from him. God brought us together and united us, and I was enjoying union and communion with the living God while I was in my mother's womb. Now, why could David say such things about himself? Because he believed in the promise of God in his covenant, I will be a God to you and your children after you down through their generations in an everlasting covenant. He knew that God did not say to Abraham, I will be a God to you and your children after you down through their generations, but in a different way with your children than I am with you. He knew that God did not say to Abraham, I will be a God to you and your children after you, but not until your children reach the age of accountability or make a profession of faith. No. He knew that God did not say to Abraham, I will be a God to you and your children after you, but not until you see signs of grace in them. No. Abraham and his children stood on the same Level before God. I will be a God to you and your children after you. And Abraham, whatever it means to have me as your God, that is what it means for your children as well. And that is why these parents and these leaders could be so hopeful about the destiny of their little children. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. You see here that even if one of the parents is truly a Christian, the child belongs to God, even if the other is a hardened unbeliever. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14. Now, there is a great deal in this verse that I'm not even going to talk about. I just want you to notice one thing, the state of the children of this one believing parent. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his believing wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise, your children are unclean, but now they are holy. And what does it mean to be holy? It means to belong to the Lord. It means for God to separate you from the world to Himself. To claim you so that you might live in terms of his wishes, his his word. So here you have this one believing parent. Remember, the other one's an unbeliever. But you have this one believing parent, and God says, I claim that child for myself. You see, when God enters into a covenant with a man, he claims the family. That's his flow of things. When God makes a promise to a man, the promise trickles down through the family. God says, I will be a God to you and to your children after you, down through their generations in an everlasting covenant. Is God a liar? I don't think so. I want to give you some quotes from some pretty famous Bible scholars. So I want to show you how they have interpreted these covenant promises of God concerning your children. And bear in mind they are talking about your children unless they've already been excommunicated or they've already been sh- shown themselves to be apostate and remember though even the prodigal son came home. Listen now. This is from Pierre Marcel, a 20th century reformed preacher. It is the will of God, clearly revealed in Scripture, to count the children of believers among the covenant, which He freely established in His sovereignty. God promises to to parents and to future parents of the covenant that He considers their children in the covenant and consequently in His kingdom and in His church. The covenant was never simply concluded with one or another person taken as individuals, but always his posterity is included. It is a covenant from generation to generation. It never embraces isolated individuals detached from their families, but individuals within families. Not this particular person, not this person alone, but with him, all that belongs to him. Not only for his own sake, but this person as a father with his posterity, with everything that is connected with him. Listen with his money and his goods, with his influence and authority, his profession and his relationships, with his intelligence and his heart, his science and his art, with his social life and political life. When God makes a covenant with a man, he claims everything about him, including his children. Now here's the, great 16th century Swiss reformer, Zwingli. And I only use Zwingli here because he was actually considered one of the weakest of the reformers on this subject of the covenant. And he says, the children of Christians are no less than the children of God than their parents are or than the children of the Old Testament were. But if they belong to God, who will refuse them baptism?" Samuel Miller was one of the greatest 19th century Presbyterians, and he said this, From the first dawning of reason, the covenant children ought to be taught to consider themselves as the Lord's children, solemnly dedicated to him in soul and body. And then the great Scottish scholar, William Cunningham. In the whole history of our race, the human race, God's covenanting dealings with His people with respect to spiritual blessings have had regard to their children as well as to themselves, so that the children as well as the parents have been admitted to the spiritual blessings of God's covenant and to the outward signs and seals of these covenants. There is no evidence that the general principle, so full of mercy and grace and so well fitted to nourish faith and hope, was to be parted from in the New Testament, or laid aside, but on the contrary, a great deal to confirm the conviction that it was to continue to be acted on. In other words, he is saying in the New Testament, nothing changed about the relationship of children to the covenant and to God. We are to view our children as the Lord's children. Now, let me refer to the Westminster Directory of Public Worship of God. This is part of our confession as a church in the Hanover Presbytery. This document gives us advice and direction on how to worship God publicly. And there is in this directory a section on baptism and how to administer it with a concise explanation as to why we baptize Babies of Believers. Let me read a sentence from it that most Presbyterians today do not believe. One of the reasons for raising up of our Hanover Presbytery was to restate and reemphasize this old part of our faith that not very many Presbyterians believe any longer. And remember, this is our confession of faith. It tells us why we should baptize babies, and I really hope that you're ready for this. Quote, they are Christians and federally holy before baptism, and therefore they are to be baptized. The word federal is another name for covenant. So it literally says, children are Christians and covenantally holy before baptism. Therefore, they are to be baptized. In other words, we don't bring a little baby forward to be baptized in order to make a Christian out of them. We don't don't believe baptism makes anyone a Christian. We baptize little children because of the promise of God. We believe them to be holy before they are baptized. And that and this is a public sign and seal that they belong to the Lord. Now, why can our confession say such a thing in our directory of worship? Because the men that wrote it believed the covenant promises of God that I will be a God to you and your children after you down through their generations in an everlasting covenant. Now, that's my instructions to the story that we find ourselves in Luke 18. Next week, we're actually going to apply all this information to Luke 18, 15 through 17. I want to read to you something by a pastor by the name of Randy Booth. And it comes from his excellent book on baptism, on infant baptism, called The Children of Promise. And I'm going to read to you from pages 80 through 82. It's a little long, but this is really important for you to hear and to understand. He says, "...the dispensational and baptistic view that God has turned His attention primarily to individual believers does not do justice to the Scriptures." It fails to appreciate the spiritual and inward focus of the older covenants, as well as the external and corporate redemptive concerns of the new covenant. Individualistic thinking has clouded the ability of many Christians to think covenantally and corporately. Christians living in 20th century America have been especially steeped in the idea of the rugged individual, such a focus coupled with the de-emphasis on the corporate elements of human life, would have been foreign to the people of the Old and New Testaments. The New Testament must be read against the backdrop of Old Testament covenants familiar to first century Palestinians. We We may not read our individualistic American culture back into the first century, the redemptive intent of the blood of Christ extends beyond the important but narrow concerns of individual salvation. Like the older administrations of the covenant of grace, God's redemptive concerns in the new covenant extend to the corporate and physical aspects of man's life. For example, his family and his society. The new covenant, like the older Uh, covenants, addresses, husbands, wives, children, slaves, household, the visible and local church, the state, crime, politics, economics, social ethics, labor, education, the nations, and even our eating and drinking. These are not peripheral, peripheral matters that are simply footnotes to redemption. They are important concerns throughout the Bible. Moreover, as individuals are redeemed, Every area of life is brought under the influence of redemption. The blood of Christ is powerful to redeem all things. The summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things upon the earth, Ephesians 1.10. It was the Father's will through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him I say, rather things on earth or things in heaven, Colossians 1.20. The Baptistic perception. That the new covenant does not have much concern for the redemption of the external and corporate aspects of man's life has led to an unbalanced and disproportionate emphasis on individualism and has fostered a situation in which the church is less and less influential in American culture. Only a covenantal view of redemption, of redemptive history, can do justice to the comprehensive concerns of the gospel. The Baptistic view of both history and the future is not supported by the Bible. Both the old and the new covenant show concern for the redemption of both the internal and the external aspects of people. The new covenant offers a greater realization than the old did because redemption has been accomplished and applied with power and fullness internally and externally. Since there can be no objection to circumcising children under the old covenant, there is even less reason to object to baptizing children under the new. The new covenant redeems every aspect of creation. The people of God, the church, in both the Old and New Testaments are the same God's redemptive concerns are likewise the same in both eras for individuals, households, and societies, both internal and external, physical and spiritual, and personal and corporate. Amen. Let us pray. Our precious Lord, your covenant of grace has been vastly misunderstood in the past few generations. And that misunderstanding has led to much confusion in the church, along with false ideas about salvation and the relationship of our children to the church. Forgive us and help us to see the reality of your covenant with us and our children after us, to see our children as separated unto you and our need to raise them with a focus on you And with a Christ-centered worldview that embraces all of life in terms of your covenant. And Father, inculcate in us and through us, our children, the necessity of bringing all areas of our lives and our culture into submission to your covenant demands. For Christ's sake.